as we uh, turn our attention back to the portion of Scripture that we have uh, read. Would you join me in seeking God's face once again in prayer? And let's pray. We've just heard, O Lord our God, of the, the psalmist shedding tears uh, when you are uh, dishonored. Lord, we wish that we recognized in ourselves such concern and zeal for your glory. Uh, Lord, how we long to know more of you and to be brought closer to you that we might have such zeal for the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in these moments, we do plead with you uh, to speak to your people. Isaiah 55 tells us that your word never returns to you empty or void, but it accomplishes much. And how we pray that, Lord God, your word would resound this morning, that we would know that change in our own lives. And for your name's sake we pray. Amen. Okay. Now if uh, you're joining us for the the first time today, or maybe if it's been a a while since you've been at St. Peter's, I I think it's probably worth knowing as we start where we are in terms of our our Sunday morning uh, preaching. It's probably helpful to start there. Last week, last Sunday morning, we, we finished a sermon series where for perhaps about 18 months or so, we had been looking at the, the early part of Luke's gospel. So that's where we ended uh, last week. That's in the background. And then ahead of us, in a couple of weeks' time, we will begin something new. And so you can see where we are this morning. Um, we're in a sort of interim period, aren't we? It's middle ground. If you like, we could say we are between a sermon series uh, just now. So what are we going to look at and what are we going to think about uh, this morning at St. Peter's? Well, this morning, what I want us to focus on, I think could be described as the most important matter of all. So that's a, that's a big claim from the front to start with, isn't it? The most important matter of all. Why do I say that? Well, fundamentally, of course, the Christian religion, as we've said before, It is not anthropocentric. It is theocentric. It is not anthropocentric, but it is theocentric. That though you and I can so easily slip into thinking about Christianity and the church as being about us and how we are served, though we can do that, the reality is that the focus of the Christian experience and the Christian life, the focus must be upon God and how we are to serve God in all things. Well, because of that today, I want to turn to what is just one of, it's one of the greatest portions in all of the Bible, isn't it? This is a section where we are shown something at least of the excellency and the majesty and even the supremacy of our God. And on top of that, We're also shown this little glimpse of the gospel work 
that this God has accomplished for us, his people. What are we going to do today? We get to turn to Isaiah chapter 6. So I'm going to invite you to do that right now. If you've got a copy of Scripture, if you've got a phone, you can turn uh, to Isaiah chapter 6 and the first section. Isaiah chapter 6. And the, the first thing, the first heading is this. A vision of the greatness of our God. A vision of the greatness of our God. Now, okay, like some, I don't know, hay bale in a, an Angus farmer's field. And boy, is this portion of Scripture tightly bound, isn't it? Though we're only really going to look at, what is it, verse 1 to the end of verse 7. Honestly, there is so much here, isn't there? There are so many wonderful, beautiful details. So what is it, under this heading, what is it that should draw your attention and my attention? Well, here under this heading, I simply want us just to take a step back and admire two aspects that we learn about our God. You with me? So under the heading, and we'll maybe spend more of our time here than else, you know, in the other headings. Under this heading, we just admire a couple of aspects about our God. Now, if you've got your Bible there, if you look at to the very start of the chapter and to verse 1, then perhaps we'll get a hint of what we're going to see here. We'll see the first aspect. What are we told in verse 1? So Isaiah sees the Lord. Now look at the reference. Do you find it a bit peculiar? So it's in the year that King Uzziah died. It is a little bit strange, isn't it? So it's not a time reference that says that this happened in the year King Uzziah came to power. That's what we would expect, isn't it? Or in the year that King Uzziah was born, the references to his death. That's peculiar. Why is it like that? Hmm? And believe it or not, what we're doing right now is we're peering into, looking into the 8th century BC. This here is about, uh, about 740 BC. And what we need to appreciate is that this was a time of almost unparalleled prosperity for the people of Israel. So you probably all of us have seen those before and after photographs of Dubai that we've talked about, I think, at one stage before. The before and after, do you remember the photograph of Dubai pre-investment and what it's like, just as a wilderness, a desert, and then compared to what Dubai is like now? Well, that's it in a sense. A time of almost unparalleled prosperity for the people of Israel. But wait a minute, what's, what's happening now? Well, now, not only is King Uzziah lying, dying after this long and prosperous reign, but hang on a second, the, the people's enemies, the Assyrians, and they are led by this ferocious warrior, the Assyrians are, are looming large. They, they seem set to invade at any time. And so after this prosperity, do you feel it where the people are now? They, they're, they're worried. Man, they're worried they're unsettled. They're, they're intimidated. I think you could go further. They're anxious, the people of Israel. And it's into this uh, situation, predicament, that Isaiah is shown what, what he sees. 
Now, that's the situation. This is what I would want to ask you to think about. What exactly does the prophet see? What would you say? How would you answer that? What is, what is he shown here? Yes, he's shown temple, isn't he? He's shown the temple. So he looks in, and, and he looks to the most holy place, and he sees the ark. And what's the ark? The ark is the footstool of the Almighty God. But then what does Isaiah do? He looks up from the ark, and Isaiah sees God himself, doesn't he? He sees the Lord, but where? Do you notice he sees him, and he is seated upon the throne? My Christian friend, did you receive and recognize the essential message of this vision? Who is it that truly reigns? Who is it that really ultimately is enthroned? Is it Uzziah? Is it even this ferocious warrior from the Assyrians? Is it? No, the message here is that, that it's actually the Lord who reigns. He is the one who is enthroned. The message here is that it's God who has government over the universe. He is the great potentate of time. Now, Christian friend, I would ask you just to, with me, pause, take a moment and consider, therefore, what God is doing here with you and me right now. I, I want to ask you what is going on in your life presently. Are there things that are going on in your life that are causing you, like these people, to be, to be anxious and worried, intimidated, unsettled? It's amazing to think, isn't it, that even this past week, our own king, uh, king Charles has been revealed to be, you know, seriously unwell. Perhaps that is unsettling for some in this room. Much more likely, it's the things that are going on in your life, and the things with your health and with your your finances and your your job and your family that unsettles us and causes us to worry. What is God doing? Do you see what God is doing? God has brought you this very morning to this same vision of himself. What does God want to happen? What is God doing? He wants you reminded this morning for your life, he is sovereign over it all. From, from the, the, the sparrows in the sky that we see and to the, uh, to the battles in the spiritual realm, that we face from the rule and dominion of all of this universe down to the tiniest little minutiae of the things going on in your life. God would have you know this morning that what was true before Isaiah is true before you in your life. What is that truth? Your God reigns and reigns over it all. So we look with Isaiah, don't we? And we admire what? Oh, God's sovereignty. But you'll remember that I mentioned we are to admire two aspects that were shown here about the Lord, the King. So what's the second aspect? <laughs> At this point in this text, we are introduced to the most wonderful creatures, aren't we? These are wonderful creatures. What is it that, that Isaiah sees? At this point, he sees 
heavenly beings. It's quite difficult to work them out, isn't it? Don't you agree? He sees these seraphim, uh, these fiery ones. Now, what are we told? We're told that each of them has six wings. With two, they're flying. So the, these, these things are constantly in motion, aren't they? With two, they cover their feet. And with, with two, they're, they're covering their eyes or their, their faces. And they almost, it's almost like toddlers with respect, isn't it? It's almost like toddlers, they were playing hide-and-seek. You know what they're like? These seraphim, they're, they're just, they're, they're hiding their eyes. They're, they're hiding their faces. Such is the, 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 the immensity of the presence of the glory of Almighty God. They want to shrink back. Now, I'm sure you would agree, these creatures must have been a, a, amazing to, to see and behold for Isaiah. So because of that, isn't it a little bit surprising that it is not their appearance that is actually the focus of the text? See, what did I just say? I said with their wings, I said they are constantly in motion, these angels. But did you know that they are also constantly in song? And it's that that receives the emphasis of the text in Scripture. Would you look at it with me? Let's look at verse 3. Let's listen, indeed, to verse 3. Because where are they? Do you notice they are flying above the throne, like servants, you know, above their seated master, aren't they? And they are going back and forward. This is, this is continuous song. This is antiphonal song. But would you listen? What do they sing? Listen to the words. They sing back and forth. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Holy, holy, holy. Now, you may have perhaps heard this in the past, so bear with me. But Hebrew, the Hebrew language, the language that uh, the vast majority of the Old Testament is written in, the Hebrew language, it uses repetition as a way of expressing superlatives. Are you with me? Hebrew uses repetition to express superlatives. Let me, give, let me throw an example at you. It's repetition to express superlatives. So if you go to Second Kings, let's say, later on, you will read about gold. And the, the, the author wants to describe the gold. So what does he write? He doesn't call it gold. He calls it, it's gold gold. <laughs> As a way of saying, this, this is not just gold, you see. This was purest gold. This was gold gold. And so we come to Isaiah 6. And is it not something to, to realize that this is the only occasion in the whole of the Bible where something is repeated three times? Do, do you appreciate what we are learning this morning? That perhaps a supreme truth about our God, the God we worship, is that He is the Holy One. There is, Christian friends, something about 
holiness that speaks right into what God is, who God is, what he is like. Yeah, yes, the Hebrew word for holiness, so it's the word kadosh, it, it, it tells us, yes, it does. It tells us that God is separate from us, God is distinct from us, but it tells us more. That word tells us that God is separate in terms of his moral purity. I'm asking you, what is it that Isaiah is hearing as he listens to this angelic anthem? What does he hear? He hears God praised as the one of absolute ethical perfection. Those seraphim singing to him, praising him as the one of complete moral excellence. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And so this morning again, I'm asking you that you would take a moment. Is it not staggering, astounding for us to realize what we are doing right now at St. Peter's? Do you recognize it? You, You understand, do you, that this God, this God who's the hem of his garment filled the temple. This God whose throne rose up in vastness. This enthroned deity is the same God that we are appearing before just now in worship. This God of sovereignty and holiness. We come to now, we appear before just now as Isaiah did here. Should that not cause you and I just to to tremble a moment? To quake? But also, in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, should it not cause us to wonder and worship? So we see a, a vision. Second of all, we must consider, don't you think, a response to the greatness of our God. A response. It's obvious, isn't it? I mean, clearly, right now, you and I have to think, well, okay, that's the vision that Isaiah saw and beheld, but why did he react the way that he did? Why did Isaiah react like this? Would you look at it with me in in verse 5? Let's look at this. So, confronted with this glorious vision, Isaiah I mean, he's falling, isn't he? And he's crying out, and he cries out, woe is me. What what comes to mind for some of us in here? I think it's probably the older language, is it? You're maybe showing your age if it is. Woe is me. Maybe it's not, for I am lost. Maybe what comes to mind is, woe is me, for I am. I am undone. Why does he cry? Why, why is that the response? Let me tell you um, about a man called Robert Teclamarium, if I've not already told you about him. Have you heard of Robert Teclamarium? No, I don't think many of you will have. Robert Teclamarium, wait for this. He was the first skier to represent in the Winter Olympics the country of Ethiopia. Robert Teclamarium the first skier to represent Ethiopia. Now, you can maybe begin to imagine how Robert Teclamarium was regarded back home, can you, by the Ethiopians? See, I don't know much about it, but I'm reckoning that the skiing scene 
in Ethiopia is not all that vibrant. Uh, so you can imagine Robert Teclamarium back home, he's held up as being this genius, isn't he? Like this, this strange man, this genius in the slopes, Teclamarium. Ah, that's fine back home. But then Robert Teclamarium went to the Winter Olympics and things did not go so swimmingly for Mr. Teclamarium. So he got there and uh, you can imagine what it was like. So he's, they're warming up, they're all gathering together. And so here he is and he's watching these Canadian skiers and then they're just firing past them and they're all doing the warm up. And then he watches the, the Norwegian skiers and then the American skiers. And what happens for this guy? He's looking at them one after another. And each time they go by, it's highlighting to him as he looks, highlighting the flaws, the evident flaws that this man has got in his skiing techniques. And it doesn't end well, to be honest. I wish there was a better end to the story. But Robert Teclamarium ended up coming in, wait for this, he came in 84th place which, again, I don't know that much about it. But if that's not last, it's got to be quite close to being last. Do you recognize what had happened as he watches all those skiers go past him? He is a man who has been exposed and exposed by a far, far higher standard. And as you turn into this portion of Scripture, do you not recognize and feel that that is exactly what has happened to Isaiah the prophet? Why is he crying out, woe is me? Why? Because this vision of an infinitely holy, morally perfect God has exposed the prophet exposed him as inadequate, exposed him as unworthy, faced with this far higher standard of holiness. He's cut in pieces. He's cut to the heart. He is filled not just with reverence. This is a man who is filled with fear before God. Now, I said earlier on that this section, like a hay bale, is really kind of tight, tightly bound and there's an awful lot here. There is, though, isn't there, when you think about it, something that's quite surprising in this text. Now, just, just think about what we're dealing with for a moment. What is it? So it's a vision, and it's a splendid vision of God. So would you not expect to hear this from Isaiah? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean eyes. Or given the present conviction of the sin that he is under, cut to pieces here before God, would you not maybe even expect it to hear, woe is me, for, for I am a man of a really unclean heart. Wouldn't you expect to hear that? But did you notice in the text that that's not the focus here? Did you notice that all of the focus is on Isaiah's words? Did you pick up on that? Like just in a moment, the angel is going to fly to him and touch his mouth. You know, the emphasis is there. Then, if you look into verse 5 and, and where it ends up, listen to what he says. He says, oh, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. 
Aren't you with me in asking of the text, look, why is all the focus on his words? How would you, Christian friend, answer that? It could be the sort of idea of our speech, our words, as being the proof of the corruption that lies within us. Don't you think that? The idea of our words is providing the evidence that we are corrupt of heart. That's definitely a biblical theme, isn't it? You know that, I know that. James chapter 3 speaks of the tongue as a restless evil. Or I'll read those words of Jesus that you know well. Jesus says to us, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. So it could be that idea that, oh, woe is me, my lips are unclean. Words proving my inadequacy before you, O oh God. I think that's true. But I also think that's certainly not all of it. You see, this past week, um, I was down on Windsor Street, just down the roads. I was meeting with Crawford. Crawford and I got together, had a chat, had a prayer. And we ended up chatting about music, as we might be inclined to do. And both Crawford and I, we talked about the fact that very often when we're working, or sometimes when we're working, we like to have music playing in the background. So don't imagine, it's not, when, it's not in sermon preparation, okay? And it's maybe not when we're preparing a Bible study. But you know, if you've got an admin task to do that sort of thing, we've got music playing in the background, music playing in the background, Well, as Isaiah falls before his God and he cries out in contrition, what is the music that's playing in the background? What does he hear? But that angelic anthem. You don't recognize what's happening here. Isaiah sees the majesty of God, but then he hears the praise that this holy God deserves, and he's cut apart, full of contrition. Why? Because he's not followed suit. Isaiah recognizes that he has not in his life used his words to praise God as God truly deserves. And friends, there is an obvious and straightforward application for us as a church, isn't there? Because quite simply, Surely it's the case that none of us want to make the same mistake as that as Christians. Think about the parallels here and what God has done for you. Christian friend, in this world of darkness and this world of sin, God has acted in grace in your life. And what has he done? He has, like here, God has revealed himself to you. He has shown you by his Holy Spirit what he is like. More than that, God has even brought you into his temple to enjoy an audience before him and what opportunities we are given to use our words, our lips for God's praise. But are we doing that? What should we do on the back of this? Yes, we should use our words to tell other people of this majestic king. But can we not even seize opportunities like this that we are given this morning at St. Peter's? Can we not seize this opportunity, these opportunities to unite our voices together and to lift them up, to seize this opportunity to sing praise to this almighty God and to sing in songs of fitting praise? 
So we see a vision and we see a response. And then we close with the last thing here, the outworking of the greatness of our God. Because I have prayed about this and I ask you sincerely to consider how you are this morning as you, you come into St. Peter's. Where are you? Is it that, that this morning, in all honesty, you're a Christian who is so tired, so fatigued by your sin? Or, or you're, you're, you're a Christian who is just so burdened by these, just the, the patterns and the frequency of your sin, that the hold that it seems to have on you? Or is it not even that? You know, is it the case that you're not even yet trusting in Jesus Christ and you're here and you're just so desperate to know some peace with this God that you repeatedly hear about. If it's any of that, I want you to know that as we end, we are given such good news here that we are given the answer to all of that need. And I want you to see it and clutch it. Look with me to verses 6 and 7. Now, can you see what happens? So, so we're told at this point, one of these magnificent beasts, these creatures, these angels, they, they, one of them flies, but directly towards the prophet Isaiah. Now, what, what, what are they carrying? Can everyone get the detail there? They're carrying a burning coal or a hot stone. It'll depend what translation you've got. They're carrying it at tongues. Now, what do they do? The angel touches Isaiah on the lips, maybe cauterizing his lips. But then the thing that I want you to focus on is the fact that there is a pronouncement made. I wonder if you would all listen to it in verse 7. Listen to the seraph, the seraphim. He touches Isaiah with a burning coal and says this. Behold, this has touched your lips. Now listen to these words. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. <laughs> do, 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 do you see what's happening with Isaiah? I, Isaiah is realizing in this moment and hearing that he is not lost. He is not a lost cause. He is hearing from God and he is hearing about the crucial topic of forgiveness. Now, now we are coming right now to what is surely the, I mean, a, a crucially important, important matter, this matter of forgiveness. But I'm going to sound like an owl, uh, I realize, because what I want you to, to, to see in the text is both the how and the who. The how and the who. First of all, friend, how does this, how does this forgiveness come about? Would you notice that at the end of verse 6, now, what I want you to, to, to recognize is where this coal comes from. Where does this seraph get this coal? Do you notice the detail in the text? Look at those words. From the... From the altar. Now, that's clearly the altar in this temple that Isaiah is seeing. But are we all sure we know what that is? This coal has come from the place of sacrifice. Hasn't it? 
This call has come from that place, the place where the sinful person was substituted for an animal. And then the animal was on that altar, that animal was killed and it was slaughtered and the blood was used from that point. Why? The blood of the animal was, was used to make atonement, to propitiate, to turn away God's righteous, just fear, anger at that substituted sinful person. The coal has been taken from that altar of sacrifice. That's the how of forgiveness. What was the owl? What about the who? And I think probably every single person in this room knows exactly what I'm going to say. That as with every other example in the Old Testament of a substitutionary sacrifice for sin, who is the who? That Jesus of Nazareth. That's who's being pointed to here. But don't you recognize the condescension here? Like, we're going to end. We come at land with this, but I want to ask you a favor. Would you do this? Would you all please turn with me to John chapter 12? Do that, please. We end with this. John chapter 12 from about verse 37. John chapter 12 from about verse 37. Now, John obviously is John 12. John's speaking about Jesus. And he's speaking about Jesus. He's pointing to Jesus. But I need you to appreciate, at this point in time, John is speaking about Isaiah. And he's actually talking about Isaiah chapter 6, the portion of Scripture that we have been in. And now do this with me. Look at verse 41. Who does Scripture tell us Isaiah beheld in that vision. Look at the words. John says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. Referring to whom, Christian friend? Who did Isaiah see high and lifted up and exalted? He saw Jesus. Isaiah saw the very Son of God. He saw the very second person of the Trinity. Do you not now recognize the condescension? Christian friend, I'll ask you the simplest of questions. Who has died for your sin? Do you recognize from Isaiah 6 the answer? It is this exalted king of Isaiah chapter 6 who has died for your sin. Isn't that something? So this this one, who, the hem is, whose garment filled the temple, and this one who has caused the ground in Isaiah to shake, this one who's caused the, the angelic realms to sing, this one who is distinct from us, transcendent, this one who is glorious and holy, what has he done for you? He has so humbled himself that he has taken your place. This king of kings he has substituted for you, that he has then walked out to an altar, an altar at Calvary, and this king of kings, he has become a sacrifice, and it's a sacrifice for you. He has been slain. His blood has been poured out. And why? That this morning in St. Peter's, Christian friend, you would know with all surety and certainty that because of Jesus, you are entirely forgiven from all of your sin. Isn't it something? Doesn't it deserve our, our praise? 
What has the king done? The king of kings for you has become a coal. The son of God for you and I, he has become a a, a stone, a sacrifice. Surely it is that what we do from this point is we turn away from this incessant focus on ourselves, this anthropocentric view of Christianity. And where do we look? We look in all things to our God. We look to live in all things in gratitude for this majestic and holy God. And we go about our lives together as the church singing that angelic anthem, don't we? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Friends, let's bow our heads and let's pray.